Just before we start, don't forget, John and I are live on stage. The red velvet seats, I can see them now, John, Ooh. of the Olympia, <laughs> the 5th of March. David McQuinion's podcast, live. Get your tickets at ticketmaster.ie. See you there. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. Like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. What in the world is happening on Wall Street? Economic indicators. Who knows where this is going to end up? To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How are you doing there? It is the time for the podcast. You know, they're drilled, John. We're trying to make this economics malarkey a little bit more comprehensible, a little bit more meaningful. I'm trying to make sense of what is an extremely complicated world. Now, one of the institutions that purports to be able to make sense, or at least make a stab at making sense of this extremely complicated world, is the Federal Reserve, the central bank of the United States, John. Indeed. And today, we are going to do something which most people think is impossible. We're going to make central banking interesting. Wow. Okay, and we're going to do it. With the aid. You've thrown oh, down the gauntlet there, I know, Mike. I know, I know, I know, I know. But the big question I have for you to think about during this conversation is, is the Federal Reserve, to use that overused expression, fit for purpose? Now, the interesting thing is, in the same way as technology sometimes becomes obsolete, do institutions become obsolete? Because... John and I have talked to you about Schumpterian economics, right? That basically the relentless scales of creative destruction is all about doing things better. Now, one area of our lives, our societies that are insulated from that are typically state institutions, large state institutions, the department of this, the department of that, the central bank, etc. And as the economy changes and as society changes, what we rarely ask ourselves the question is, should these institutions change? Do they have a sell-by date? Is there a better way of doing things? Or do we just muddle along with the same set of institutions that have been with us for 100 years? Like, I don't think there's any car, phone, computer, any household gadget that has remained unchanged for 100 years. And yet, many of our institutions set up 100 years ago are more than that have remained more or less the same. So that's a question we'll talk about later on. But John, now we have a fascinating geezer, right? There was a great book that I read many years ago called The Lords of Finance by yeah. a guy called Liquid 
Ahmed, which as a name goes, is pretty good. That's pretty damn good. And he goes, 1929, the Great Depression and the bankers who broke the world. Right? Now, that was published about 10 years ago. Very, very brilliant book. A new book I picked up the other week called The Lords of Easy Money, taking the lords in the title. Mm -hmm. Picture the Fed, How the Federal Reserve Broke the American Economy by Christopher Leonard. It is a brilliant, brilliant book. Anybody who's interested in banking, money, finance, markets, economics, macroeconomics, monetary economics, exchange rate economics, interest rate dynamics, all that good stuff, I urge you to go and read this book. And John, what are we going to do? Is, is that part of a trilogy? And then there's Michael Flatley's Lord of the Dance. <laughs> <laughs> I am trying to be all serious oh, yeah, yeah. here. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Fucking highbrow. <laughs> Flatly. See, the lords of finance, the lords of easy money, and the lords of the dance. Let's go to America and talk to Christopher Leonard. A couple of weeks ago, you might have heard me talking about the work of Joseph Campbell. John was asking me about what I was reading, and I said I was reading this book by a fellow called Joseph Campbell. And Joseph Campbell wrote many books, uh, many, many ideas, but his major work published in 1948 was this idea called The Hero with a Thousand Faces. And it was about the stories we tell and how we tell them and a certain consistency in the general universal stories that humans respond to. And they're largely based, and this is going all the way back to religion and mythology and all the good stuff, folklore, is on a hero who is outside the inside who then makes a discovery or a sudden type of epiphany about what is going on, who then is in exile, who then comes back and tries to shed light or at least spread the word to a doubting community. And there's various iterations. I mean, the great Jesus Christ is the best one, those fellas. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the best one. And, and, and we got a lot of that in school, okay? We learned a lot of that stuff, right? But it's the same story. And, and, and it's, it's basically the way we respond to stories. It's the way humans respond to stories, right? And uh, the guy Lucas, the guy who did Star Wars, what's his name? Uh, George Lucas. George Lucas, uh, very much based Star Wars on this, you know, mm. the, the, the hero and all these sort of, and there's various meetings along the way and various different uh, exchanges. But it's a fascinating way to look at it. I was through this a couple of weeks ago, and then this book came through the letterbox, the book I ordered. And it's called The Lords of Easy Money, How the Federal Reserve Broke the American Economy by journalist Christopher Leonard. And at the centre of the book, it's a fantastic book because it's about the way the American economy runs, the power dynamic, QE, monetary policy, the dollar, money, all that good stuff. But at the centre of the book is a hero. And the hero is an unlikely fella. And we've got Christopher here on the line from the Midwest in the United States but he's an unlikely hero called Tom Honig. Christopher, how are you doing? It's great to have you. Tell us about Tom Honig and why he anchors this brilliant book you've just written, The Lords of Easy Money. Uh, thank you for having me. I'm, I'm doing great and I appreciate it. It's amazing to hear you say that because I, I've got to admit, I haven't read Joseph Campbell. I've heard a lot about that. And, and it's I'm, I'm shocked to hear that sort of narrative arc because that is exactly what happened uh, with this guy, Tom Honig. And, and I didn't script it this way. This just happened to be reality. So 
As as a reporter, I came across this story by accident. I mean, I'm a business reporter here in the U.S. I'm very concerned with what's going on in our economy, growing income inequality, all the rest of it. And I became obsessed with the Federal Reserve around 2016, because as you know, the Fed had really embarked on this experimental and different path of monetary policy. They quadrupled the amount of money they'd printed during the 2010s. The Fed printed about 300 years worth of money in four years, dramatically wow. reshaped. Actually, yeah. can, I, can I stop you there? Because explain to me how it's done. I know this is going to be a technical question, but you know, QE, what actually happens? Yes. Thank you. And, and, and let's, this helps talk about how I got to Tom Honig. The Fed did two key things in the 2010s. First, it brought the short-term interest rate of money down to zero, and it held it there for seven years. That's amazing. Interest rates had bumped up against zero briefly in the past. The Fed held them there for nearly a decade. That reshapes the financial system. But that's not all the Fed did. The Fed did this program that had never been done before, called quantitative easing, which, you know, typical of the Fed, they had to name it something that makes no sense to anybody and means nothing. Okay. It's really just aggressive money printing. The Federal Reserve is the one institution on earth that can create dollars out of thin air. That's why we created the Fed, to, to create our currency, yeah. the dollar. Okay. But the, the way the Fed does that is important mechanically. Okay. The Fed creates money not by making dollars appear out there in normal people's checkings account or in the United States Treasury or anything. The Fed can create money by buying assets on Wall Street. So the Fed will call up a bank like JP Morgan and say, hey, we want to buy $8 billion worth of bonds from you. Oh, okay. JP Morgan sells the bond. And the Fed says, hey, JP Morgan, go check inside your reserve account at the Fed, the special account. And JP Morgan opens the account, boom, $8 billion just appeared out of thin air. The Fed just created it with the keyboard, okay? Quantitative easing is when the Fed repeats that transaction several times until it has created 600 billion new dollars, for example, in the banking system, inside the accounts of JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, Wells Fargo. So in the first 100 years of its existence, or if we're being exact, I think it's 95 years, the Fed gradually increase the amount of money, what we call the so-called monetary base, the original new dollars the Fed can yep. create, it gradually expanded that pool to be about $900 billion by 2008 before the crisis hits, $900 billion over about a century. Then between 08 and 14, the Fed increases its balance sheet by $3.5 trillion, meaning it takes $3.5 trillion in assets onto its balance sheet by creating that many new dollars, which is why I say three and a half centuries worth of money printing in four years. In four years. Oh, wow. Even to a guy like me, that's real money, you know? And real numbers and, and big numbers. Yes. And, and the beginning. So, okay. So, fine. So now we live in this new era 0% interest rates, quintupled or, or more than quadrupled monetary base. And I'm looking at why the Fed did that, what their thinking was, why they made those decisions, and what the real world effects were. And so I got obsessed with this stuff. I didn't see a lot of great reporting on quantitative easing in 2016. I didn't find any nice, big, in-depth magazine articles about it. There wasn't a book about it. But one mention I saw of it said that the consequential vote to go down this path was made by the Federal Reserve November 3rd, 2010, and the vote was 11 against one. 
So as a reporter, I'm like, well, that's an interesting vote tally. Who, Who's the okay, one? one mm-hmm. Yeah. What's that person's deal? You know? <laughs> well, the one was this guy you mentioned, Tom Honig who was a regional bank president inside the Fed from Kansas City, which totally coincidentally is where I grew up and live now. But uh, I had never met Tom Honig. Uh, I'd been a business reporter in Missouri, but never crossed paths with this guy. And the caricature, when I started reporting on this guy, I was told, oh, he was a crank. He was a dissident. He always voted no. He was an inflation hawk. He was warning that quantitative easing would, would create hyperinflation. He was wrong. He's, he got it wrong. But then, interestingly, I started reading the actual debates inside the Fed. You know, the Fed's top policy committee transcribes their arguments, and but then they only release them five years later when everybody's moved wow. on. That is quite right? the statuty of limitations, isn't it? Statue of limitations, five years for just chit-chat at the Fed. It's a lot. Yes, yes. Okay. And and the Fed is so darn smart in this regard because what they do is they'll release an entire year's worth of transcript in a day. So that leaves the poor reporters at the Journal and Bloomberg and the New York Times to like <laughs> yeah, dig yeah. through this for like news. It's an avalanche of stuff, Yeah. Yeah. But as as an author, I have the time to actually sit down and, and punish my brain by reading through these. I was about to say, God love you. That is severe punishment. It's, having you know what? Having written these things as a kid in the Irish Central Bank and being privy to them, nothing, bar actually including watching paint dry, would put you asleep quicker than reading some of the minutes of central bankers. So there you are. You're reading through all this stuff. And what do you find? I find... That in 2010, this guy, Tom Honig, was making fascinating arguments about what the Federal Reserve was doing that had nothing to do with price inflation. And and, and I need to back up and point out, I discovered this guy, Tom, had never been a dissenter. Okay, he'd, he'd, In fact, at the time, he was the longest serving member of the Fed to be on that policy committee. He'd been there for 32 years. He'd seen a lot. He'd been on the voting committee since 1991. He had almost never dissented during his entire career. He was entirely inside the norm. But then in 2010, he dissents eight times in a row, every single meeting. And his argument was compelling and mind-blowing to me. One of the key things he talked about in 2010 was the so-called, quote, allocative effect. Okay, at the end of the day, this guy's a central banker and an economist. Okay, so he talks about allocative effects. But what he was saying was, if you do this, if you if you do these easy money policies, you are going to be allocating resources toward the biggest of the big banks, the richest of the rich Americans and the riskiest of the risk assets. He, He was saying these zero interest rate policies aren't going to create that many jobs or build factories or build bridges or educate people. It's going to, it's going to entice banks to push more money out onto the risk spectrum and buy more risky debt, extend more risky loans, increase the overall amount of debt. And then critically, critically, it's going to inflate asset prices. Okay. Assets would be stocks, bonds, real estate. Okay. That's one kind of inflation. The other kind is what we're very familiar with, like price inflation for the price of food, gas, TVs. But Tom Honig was saying, folks, we're going to stoke asset prices and that's going to necessarily benefit the very rich. 
1% of Americans own 40% of all the assets in the country. And, and the poorest, if you will, or the bottom half of Americans, the bottom half of our wealth spectrum controls only 5% of the assets. And so the bottom 50% own 5% and the top 1% own 40%. Correct. And that has been profoundly amplified by these zero interest rates or what economists call ZERP and QE coming as like a double whammy on the upside for rich folk. Yes. And critically at this point, I must say, this isn't some analysis or like unexpected side effect. The Fed knew that this policy of 0% interest rate quantitative easing was going to stoke asset prices. That was one of the, the key ways that this was supposedly going to boost growth was to stoke the stock market and the bond market to create the so-called wealth effect. Yeah, the trickle whereby, down. The rich guy will spend loads and the poor guy gets some crumbs. Exactly. So they knew it. Uh, so what I'm trying to say here is this stoked asset prices by design. And, and Honig was the only guy willing to vote against it because he said this is going to dramatically increase the divide between rich and poor. And, and, and to be completely blunt, he, he it ruined his career, if I'm being honest. Okay, this guy was pushed out of the circles of like respectable dialogue because he was bringing up this point and voting against it. And, and our central bank really, really disdains dissent. I mean, it is not acceptable. It is not accepted. The culture is consensus, pathologically consensus driven, if I can say so, because they want to present a united front to the markets. And, and I think they also want to present a united front to the general populace to, to create this impression that there's like no debate, that, that they're just solving yeah, that. There's that. Certainty. There's certainty. Exactly. And the one thing we always say in this podcast is, you know, I'm a big believer in evolutionary economics, which is basically the, the economy evolves and it adapts and nothing is certain. And we live in a, an unbelievably complicated world. And in, in fairness to them, sometimes because we live in an incredibly complex and complicated and interrelated and unpredictable world, the premium uncertainty is essential because you have to calm down. There used to be this expression, you might, I remember years ago, there was a fella, there was an old central banker I worked with, and he will remain nameless. So I'm not sure if he's still knocking around in Dublin somewhere, but he had this great expression, which was, we'd come in with these proposals as young economists, and he used to look at them, probably read them, digest them. And he said, do you know what's a very dangerous thing to do? <laughs> and I'd say, what? He said, frighten the horses. So he oh said, my God. don't frighten the horses. So oh basically that was his work. Wow. That's, that was his view of how this country worked. And when you're a so kid you're, and you're inside <laughs> there and you're, you're, you're thinking I'm 24 years old and I'm hearing this from the top guys. And they're basically saying out there are a bunch of giddy horses. And our job is not to frighten them. That's extraordinary. Wow, that is incredible. Yeah. Anyway, let's keep going. But it's the same sort of it's the same sort of thinking, isn't it, Christopher? We're talking about. Well, let me say, as a horse, <laughs> <laughs> I was. Uh, that that I'm I'm just sort of sitting here. I want to fall out of my chair. That's amazing. And and to jump ahead, I don't want to jump ahead too much. But that's where we are today where now the primary public relations directive is don't frighten the horses. So you're sitting here telling horses, uh, look, it appears like the barn is on fire. 
but <laughs> it's not. We have, uh, I, I don't, I, I don't want to get glib and I was just about to, but please it, do, it, please do. Glib, well, glib gets you, look, it gets you all, all over the place. We're good. We're good with glib over here. I mean, if I was to torture the metaphor, it's like, you know, yes, horses. Yes. You're smelling smoke, but we're going to taper the smoke uh, calmly over time. And yes, there's a lot of heat and it's running faster than we think, but it's transitory heat. (laughs) 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 And the horses, like I'm the horse in the back of the room. And there are a lot of us thinking, yeah, man, (laughs) I think this barn is on fire. (laughs) (laughs) And it makes me feel crazy when the Fed chairman, Jay Powell, gets up in December of 2020 and and he says, yeah, I I don't really think we're seeing elevated asset prices. You're you're just saying. You're kidding me. What? The the stock market was like 25% higher than it was before the first case of COVID. So you're telling me that the underlying value of United States corporations has increased 20% since the pandemic? Or is it because you're pumping $120 billion directly into Wall Street every month through permanent quantitative easing? 20 million a month. Billion. A a month. A month. So this this is what we're talking about. And and again, the interesting thing is, Christopher, yeah, I am also a believer to a degree in monetary financing. So this is a weird thing. So for me, this is a big challenge because I also believe that, which would be an anathema to them, which is that if you were to finance good stuff this way, you know, trains we spoke about at the beginning, schools, hospitals, all those sort of things, right? You could do something extraordinary. You can do amazing things with monetary leverage. But the United States is just choosing to do the wrong things. So it doesn't mean that the efficacy of monetary policy is always and everywhere unethical and focused on big money or the interest of the few. You can actually, you can take Jay Powell, you can fuse him with Bernie Sanders and have something really interesting in a country that prints its own currency. So... First of all, it doesn't matter what what I think. I really do feel my primary job is to be a reporter. Like, I, if I have one skill set I can offer to people, it's that I can like dig around, figure out what people say, figure out how things work, and, and tell it to you. But to the degree it's worth it, I would like to say that I I agree with you completely. I'm actually a big fan of um, this period in American economic history that we would call the New Deal period of, you know, from roughly 1940 to 1972 to put kind of a rough bracket around it. And I actually support the idea in times of downturn of hiring 100 people to dig a ditch and another 100 people to fill that ditch back in and then the first 100 to dig it again, just to put money into the hands of people who will spend it out into the economy. Uh, I'm actually quite a big fan of... Like, uh, 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 and again, I'm getting out of my lane here a little bit, but I, I, I agree with you completely about financing demand when it's called for. Now, what I'm arguing in the book is that what the Fed has done over the last decade is entirely different than that. Yeah, and you're, um, and you're absolutely right. It is entirely different. And it's, yeah, because of, we, it's an abuse of monetary power rather than the facilitation or the prudential exercise of monetary power. Yeah, and and if we could get back to this thing called helicopter money that people talk about all the time, 
which my understanding is the original concept of helicopter money was that the federal government would borrow money by having the Fed finance it by just buying the debt and printing the cash to do it. But then the federal government would use it as, as a stimulus. It would give yeah, put it into people's pockets. Cash. Okay. Quantitative easing is not helicopter money. You're absolutely it's quantitative right. easing. So what the Fed is doing is buying assets from the biggest banks in the country, pumping that new money into the reserve accounts of the biggest banks on Wall Street and incentivizing those banks to invest out onto the risk spectrum. And, and, and we got a very different looking economy because of that over the last decade. No, so Christopher, you know, how does this end? Well, because I can, in the, the book, the, 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 the last page, I have it here, I have it here. I was yeah. going through, there's a place that Irish listeners will know, which is Limerick Junction. <laughs> Limerick Junction <laughs> is the coldest place the most forlorn place in on the whole it sure island. Is. It sure Limerick is. Junction is where the train to Cork from Dublin uh, deposits the people from Limerick at a place called Limerick Junction to be met by an erratic service of another train to bring them to Limerick, oh right? God. Okay. And it's many, many Irish listeners will have stories about Limerick Junction because it's one of those places that sticks in our heads. But I was reading the final paragraph of your book at the junction okay just we just call it the junction and you just say you that the final the final chapter is called the long crash you say the long crash of 2008 has evolved into the long crash of 2020 and those bills have yet to be paid and that's where you end so mm -hmm. where do you think to put a bit more flesh in this this goes from here because 2020 could be a pivotal, pivotal year. In fact, many people think 1920 was the beginning of maternity, you know, it was a crucially pivotal year. Yeah. 2020 could be as pivotal. Sometimes when you're living through it, you don't know it. Where do you, Christopher, think this is going to end? Well, quickly before I say that, thank, thank you for reading that. And, and the point I'm trying to make is that I do think the crash of 2008 never ended, particularly in America. Our democratically controlled institutions didn't have the capability, willpower, or effectiveness to be able to get in there and address the root problems that we have in this country that, that fed into the crash of 08. We papered over it by printing money. And so we have kicked the can down the road while increasing the size of the can. And so here we are at 2022 in a terribly unenviable position. Okay, where does it go from here? Unfortunately, like as a business journalist in America, almost all of my books end on a down note. And it, I, I consider it not my fault. I am just writing about what's going on. But um, we're at this juncture whereby our central bank has been pumping up these markets for a decade and not allowing market prices to fall. Okay, they call it the Fed put. Yeah. And we have invested dramatically. I talked about printing 300 years worth of money in a few years. In March of 2020, the Fed printed 300 years worth of money in a few months. Wow. Okay. When all this controversy was happening about quantitative easing, the Fed's balance sheet was about $2 trillion. Incidentally, the Fed's balance sheet was $1 trillion before the crash of 08. It rose as high as four and a half trillion in the middle of the last decade. That was like, wow, how could it have gotten to be four and a half trillion? 
it's nine trillion now. Okay, so the Fed has gone all in on this idea of buying assets to pump up markets. And now we're facing price inflation and the Fed is going to have to tighten things up much faster than it wanted to. Okay. If you've got a $9 trillion balance sheet, you could kind of try to make things normal again. If you had seven years to kind of quietly, methodically, calmly walk through the process of unwinding the stimulus. But unfortunately with this very high price inflation, we're in a bind. So where does it end? One thing I feel extremely confident in saying, unfortunately, is we're going to have a period of bumpy market performance and volatility ahead of us. And, and, and there's no, you know, uh, the darn landing an airplane metaphor is just overused on Wall Street right now. But there's just no smooth way to get to a point where the Fed can raise interest rates to any significant degree. What I'm trying to say is we have built these enormous towering structures of debt. And when interest rates rise, those towers at best wobble and crack. At worst, they collapse. We can't raise interest rates without having dramatic negative consequences in these markets, which of course then like bleeds over into the real economy. So, you know, where does it go from here is a, a lot of readjustment and volatility in the short term. Hopefully, you know, to, I guess to put an optimistic spin on it, hopefully to get us to a better place economically and, and socially, but we've all got to buckle up for a bit of a ride to get there. That's what I would say is where this leads. Well, we will leave it there. Isolated as we are not on this little island <laughs> over here, we like to think that geography protects, but in this kind of globalized, interrelated world, geography doesn't matter, you know, because what happens in the Fed will have a Im huge impact on what happens here via various different channels. But Christopher, this, this was fantastic. The book, you should be very, very thrilled. The book is a great read. I will recommend it to all our listeners. It's called The Lords of Easy Money. How the Federal Reserve Broke the American Economy. It is, it's, it's a riveting read. It's actually, probably more importantly, Christopher, it's an essential read. So thanks for writing it. Well, thank you for the time and for reading the book. I deeply appreciate it. Not at all. Take care now. Get back out to the uh, freezing cold of Missouri in the middle of winter. <laughs> Cheers, I Christopher. need help. Thanks. I need okay. the luck. See you, man. Take Cheers. care. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. 
This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. So what you make of that, Johnny boy? Well, I thought it was fascinating. And what you were saying before we went to the interview, you were talking about do institutions change? But institutions in themselves are just people. Yep, they are just people. So as the people change, as the as the what's the word? The personnel. For? As that's what I was looking for. As the personnel <laughs> changes, surely. The institutions in themselves will change to yeah, a certain extent. Yeah, they should do. You're right. You are right. What I what I was more or less saying, and I think it's it'd be an interesting part of our, our chat, is you know the theory of bureaucracies is that bureaucracies at a certain stage stop functioning for the consumer or the people or the citizens mm. and simply function for themselves. And the role of bureaucracy is to get bigger and bigger and bigger and protect itself from any sort of outside yeah. intervention or outside inspection. And I think what Christopher there has done a great favour is he's, he's inspected. He's gone and looked at it. Yeah. And he's kind of, as the Americans say, looked under the hood. And uh, He was great. He was great. But come here. So what's, what's your, what's your gripe? What's well, your issue? Well, th- this whole thing about QE, I mean, we've talked about it many times. Keyboard cash. Yes. As I think it was referred to. Okay, so QE caused an awful lot of problems, inequality in particular. Or at least contributed to okay. and may, uh, made worse certain inequalities. There's right. no doubt of that. Okay, so what would have been the alternative? Well, that's a very good question. It's the counterfactual, really. You know, it's all very well saying something happened and it was really bad. But the question is, what would have happened if you didn't do it? If they didn't do it. So in the autumn of 2008, there was not only a bank run, but there was a systemic run. Mm. So much so, the banks wouldn't lend to each other because they didn't trust each other. And amazingly, it got to the stage that different parts of the same bank didn't trust each other, right? <laughs> right. That's what actually happened, right? Because the derivatives parts and this, the, 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 all these sorts of various different products that were being sold to people, those guys were lying to their own regulators. Yeah. So the banks themselves who should have actually been funneling their own cash into departments that were losing money, stopped. Yeah. Because they couldn't even trust their own people, right? So there's a whole systemic crash. Bernanke, having studied Anna Schwartz and Milton Friedman, said, look, we need to get money into these banks, right? How do we do it? Well, we do it through the existing channels that we have. So had they not done that, it's a very, very high likelihood that the United States and Ireland and Everyone bailed out their banks, right? Mm. You know, basically you were faced with a recession. Do you want a recession with 15% unemployment or 50%? What do you want? Like, that was really the thing, right? Right, okay. Okay, like... It was a very practical question. Yeah, yeah, like, I mean, because the Great Depression. Do you want the Great Depression or do you want a pretty bad recession? Like, what do you want, right? 
Now, if you want to be a purist and say, well, you know, we leverage oppression because we want to teach the banks a lesson, yeah. right? You can do that. But nobody, I think, in their right mind believes that that's the right way to do, to react. But did, so but, that's what I'm saying. So you're, I think you're right. So they had to do QE 2008 to 2014. Yeah. The question then, I think, was Christopher was saying was, did you need to keep doing it? For the six or seven years thereafter, yeah, and that's the shot in the dark, as as Jay Powell yeah, said. Yeah, and 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 I think that's the that's the fascinating part, is by maintaining what they call the ZERP, the zero interest rate policy. Yeah, and QE, what you were doing is you were giving a very privileged part of society, the upper echelons of the financial markets, because you're not talking the average. But bank. that's but the. My point is, they knew that that's what they that's were doing, and and the outcome, the the big contributing factor to inequality and all the rest. They knew that. Well, it's as as as, as I think we said on the on the on the on the podcast before. You know, inequality was not the unintended consequence of QE. It was the intended consequence of QE. Right. <laughs> the, what right, I mean yeah. that is that because the idea was, this is kind of remember Mrs. Thatcher's. Trickle down economics. Yeah, this is hyper trickle down economics because yeah. it was basically explicitly said we'll make really rich people really really rich. Yeah, and when they've stopped buying yachts and football clubs, <laughs> they'll eventually buy Smarties and Toblerones and Maltesers, <laughs> and the people who make Maltesers will get a job. Right? Yeah, yeah, that's the, yeah. I mean, I, I know it sounds kind of simple, but that's the logic. And and then what Christopher's saying is then then you look at the personalities and say, well, who are these guys? So if you are coming, if you're a Federal Reserve official and you're coming, and he's saying from a bank in Kansas, which Honig was coming from. Yeah. Okay, a moms and pops, Kansas, middle of the road, America. Your natural proclivity is to worry about depositors and small loaners, small businesses, right? If you're coming from private equity and from the meritocracy and the yeah. upper echelons, yeah. Your mates are rich guys. And he's basically saying they looked after their mates. Yeah. Which is kind of shocking. And then that leads us, John, to the thing I was saying at the very, very top of the discussion. You know, do institutions, because of their very bureaucratic nature, eventually reach a sell-by date? Right? Mm. And is the best way to do central banking the way we're doing it? And I mean, I probably have my own bias and legacy because I came out of that tradition. Yeah. But I think it's worth asking the question. It's not that do we need central banks? I think we do because I do. I think the lender of last resort is a critical, it's a critical function. Well, in times of crisis, for yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah. And then this is always the way, and this is what we said about, you know, the Bitcoiners and the crypto guys. It's all very well having crypto when the economy is growing by five or 6%. What happens when the economy is actually collapsing and unemployment is 20% and you have a bank crisis and you have a collapse in property prices? What do you do then? If you can't print money, how do you get out of it? Yeah, yeah. And their exactly. attitude is, well, I wouldn't say their attitude, but the, their moral stance must be that the wages of sin need to be accounted for and the wages of inflation and the wages of booms and busts need to be cleansed via high levels of unemployment and depression. That's not the way the world works. People make mistakes. And most of the time you encourage people to try and not make them again. But you don't punish them. I would yeah. think, you know. Yeah. Yeah. But I think where we are, John, is 
sometimes books change the way people think about the world. You know, little sparks, little revolutionary thoughts. And I would say that the questioning of central banking, not resulting from, but as part of this sort of investigation, these types of investigation, mm. will go on. And if... But where does it lead to? Well, it, what it leads to is if there is a better way of... So, for example, if we get another depression, so you think the helicopter money, right? The idea of... Yeah. So imagine what the, the Fed... The supply of money is like money going through a huge hose to the economy, and you spray the economy with money, right? yeah. with cash, right? Yeah. What the Fed has actually done is, at every iteration, it has made the hose smaller and smaller and smaller. So by the time it actually gets the real economy, what was a deluge is a trickle. Yes. Because all of it has gone to Wall Street. Yeah, yeah. So the idea is, how do you open up the hose again? And interestingly, the helicopter money idea is still the best one. You, you, you give people cash if they don't have it. And that's the one that actually worked in the pandemic. Yes. If we think about yeah, it, like, it did, yeah. like we've actually just done something in the last 18 months that we know has worked, which is you can actually close down the economy and you can actually credit people's accounts with money and it actually works. And now our dilemma isn't a recession anymore. It's a boom. Yeah. It's not falling prices. It's inflation. It's not falling levels of employment. It's too much employment and the great resignation. So it's worked. And I think we should bear that in mind. Just a quick message. Listen, thank you so much to all our Patreons. We couldn't do this without your support. And if you fancy supporting us and getting all sorts of fantastic gear, economic courses, tutorials, reading lists, all that jazz, follow us on Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams.